Welcome to Return of the King, Straight Talk About End Times. This is not a sermon series. This is a short-term class that we're offering over the course of about eight weeks here beginning in December 2015 uh, and going through at least January of 2016. Uh, We're going to look at what leads up to the return of Christ, what comes after the return of Christ, and everything in between. And so um, we're going to be trying to take this from a biblical standpoint rather than a popular culture standpoint. Some of what we talk about here may be different than what you've heard before. And so thanks for tuning in with us. If you're listening online as we're going through this course, please feel free to email me uh, through our website or neil, N-E-I-L, at cypressstreet.org anytime with any questions you might have and I will certainly try to get to them as we go through this course. Uh, Thanks for listening. Here we go. So last week we began by kind of, it was titled uh, Gaining a Clean Slate and I just kind of shared with you that this thing drives me crazy. I'll try to leave it alone. Um, We shared with you that you know, I, before we dove into specifics, uh, there was a couple things we needed to clear up, and so this is kind of week two of of gaining a foundation for where we're going to go from here. Uh, but the first week was just a why you should even care what I have to say about it, because uh, like I said yesterday, some of what I have to say on the topic is not what's popular today, and it's not, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can find prominent and famous teachers and doctors and stuff like that that'll teach you something very different. Uh, and so I just thought, well, why should you even listen to me in the first place? And so last week was just giving some background on, on what is popular right now and where it came from. And we found out last week that uh, it's a fairly recent phenomenon and a fairly localized phenomenon that most of the world's Christians now and throughout history have not believed what's popular um, in, in our culture today through things like Left Behind series and things like that. Um, and so what we're going to talk about and, and teach here is not uh, a minority opinion. It just feels like it right now in, in our culture today. Um, but it's in, more in line with what people like Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Wesley and all those giants of Christian history and theology uh, it's more in line with what they believed about in times. And so uh, that was kind of, if you haven't heard that last week, you know, that'd probably be a good place to start and go back and, and listen, especially if you ever find yourself through this series wondering what in the world is he talking about and why does he think that. But we hopefully won't run into that because we're going to be looking straight at Scripture. And, and today is kind of talking about how we're going to arrive at some fundamentals. And so last week we kind of ended the the talk by saying, okay, what is what are the popular beliefs about end times today? The things that you know we hear the most, and we made a list of kind of the order in which things unfold according to uh, that big long word, premillennial dispensationalism, <laughs> that we learned about last week. And so um, that's kind of how it ended. Today we're going to end with, okay, what are some fundamentals that we can know about? you know, things regarding end times, just some basics that we can know from Scripture for a fact. And, and then over the next several weeks, we're going to dive specifically into passages of Scripture that, uh, where we'll see those and, and we'll go into them in more depth. So today is kind of week two of the introduction, if you will. 
uh, to this little series, and then we're, we'll get into more specific scriptures and things. So if you didn't bring your Bible today, you're probably okay, but next week you wouldn't be. So no, we've got extras. It's all right. We've got another big term this week. Uh, last week it was PD, <laughs> Premillennial Dispensationalism. This week it's AP, Apocalyptic Prophecy. So we'll, we'll be talking about that uh, this week. Maybe we won't always have huge terms like that, but here are the first two weeks we get big terms. This is going to help us all sound smarter. Guaranteed. Uh, so I want to talk about how we're going to arrive at kind of a a sound theology of end times. And to do that, we need to start out by talking about the Bible. Because um, sometimes we make the mistake of treating the Bible as something it's not. And that's where I think we run into a lot of trouble, especially when it comes to um, books like the book of Revelation, which is uh, undoubtedly, especially nowadays and in our culture, the most... um, well, when it comes to end times, it's the book people talk about the most, right? And look at the most, and it's got all these intriguing mysteries and symbols and things going on that we have to try and sort out what they mean. And, and uh, for a lot, I would say, I'm curious, um, I don't know, if we did a poll in here, I, you guys are smarter than the average lot, but if we did a poll out in public of just general Christians, Um, I wonder if they would think that there was anything about end times in the Bible outside of the book of Revelation. You know, I think that's the book that we hear about the most and and think about the most as, you know, that's where the end time stuff is contained. Uh, The rest of scripture is about, you know, either the Old Testament stuff or Jesus stuff. And and then at the end, it tells us what's going to happen at the end. But in fact, that's not entirely the case. Um, so let's just start by talking about and putting the book of Revelation in, in context a little bit and, uh, and kind of we're going to come to a place of where are we going to get our information through this series. So sometimes we talk about the Bible as, uh, as a book of, you know, it's, it's literal infallible uh, truth that God has given us and and then that's kind of where we leave the, the conversation. And so anything that the Bible says must be so exactly that way. And, and uh, we run into trouble when we treat the Bible that way. Because first of all, it's not just a book, right? And we've talked about this before on Sunday mornings and stuff like that. But it's 66 different ancient manuscripts. All different kinds of literature from all different eras and, uh, you know, some of it was written in ancient Hebrew, some of it was written in Greek, uh, and they had, you know, this literature that was unique to ancient Hebrew and literature that was unique to Greek, you know, ancient Greek, but totally different time periods. And, and so throughout Scripture, even within, like, take the book of Genesis, for instance, that's one book of the Bible, so that the Bible contains 66 of them, that's one of them. And even just within that book, there's a variety of kinds of literature found in that book, like genres of literature, right? Like poetry or, um, you know, history. There's different kinds of, of literature that we're aware of in our culture. And likewise, there's different kinds of literature in the Bible. And some of it, we don't even know what to call it because it's so ancient. You know, like Genesis is one of the most ancient pieces of literature in the world. 
And, and there's parts of it, like Genesis 1, they don't even have a name for that, you know, like what that was called, because it's so old, and we, you know, it, we don't have that many samples of literature from that day, and it, it hasn't been classified into a group. Um, and so there's things like that where we have to understand what, that what we're looking at are unique pieces of literature, all talking about the same God, all revealing the same God and his relationship to us, but in different ways. You know, we don't treat the book of Psalms the same way as we treat, you know, the book of Kings that records history about kings. Uh, it's, we wouldn't do that with anything else, and, and so we shouldn't do that with the Bible either. And so if we try to, you know, part of the problem is we live in a, a Wikipedia world, right? <laughs> and, or an encyclopedia world, however you want to look at it. And, you know, that's... That's unique to us. Not all cultures live that way or have lived that way. But we are big on uh, the facts, right? We want the facts listed for us in a simple, easy to digest thing. You know, the order in which it happened and exactly how it happened. And we want you to have sources cited for it and where it came from. And we're big on, you know, boom, 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 boom. This is how it happened. Well, uh, not all cultures had Wikipedia, right? <laughs> Not all cultures were wired that way. And interestingly enough, you know, it's, it's our bias that that is how you determine truth, is through an encyclopedic account of what something is or how it occurred. Um, but in fact, that's not the only way that truth can be revealed. And sometimes a story is a better way to tell truth. That's why Jesus told so many parables, Right? You know, if he could have just told us fact, 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 that would fit better with our little, our culture and our mindset of, you know, well, we'd rather it be in an encyclopedia, but Jesus felt like it was easier for him to talk about truth in terms of stories. And so there's different kinds of literature, and just because one thing, you know, like the Psalms might be poetry, doesn't mean that it's any less true than an account that's more this happened and this happened and this happened. Uh, and so we kind of have to just understand different kinds of literature for what it is. And that's also true with Revelation. Another thing we have to consider when we're talking about the Bible and how we interpret it and so forth is that we're not Jews either. Right? So we live in a Wikipedia world and we're not ancient Jews. We're not even modern Jews, most of us, right? So uh, one thing we have to recognize is that we're going to have a hard time sometimes Understanding things that they wouldn't have had a hard time understanding. All right? And, like, for instance, you have to assume that they had inside jokes that were unique to their culture, or that they had, um, you know, idioms or phrases or things that were unique to them that they understood that we're not going to catch on to. You know, and I don't know if I mentioned this here last week or where I mentioned it, but, you know, if, if we say something's off the wall or you know, off the cuff, or different little odd phrases like that. We know what we're talking about, but another culture in the world would be like, eh? You know, if someone over in Russia trying to learn English, you know, they're having a hard time understanding that one. What are you, what are you talking about, off the cuff? You know, and, and so, you know, things like that, we have to assume that there's going to be some things that because they had a unique worldview, because they had a unique culture, because they had unique way of talking about things 
in their culture that there's going to be stuff that they wrote about that we're going to have a high learning curve on. Um, then you consider the fact that there's passages of Scripture that would have been hard for them, like especially when we get into prophecy. It was not written in such a clear fashion that all the Jews were in agreement on exactly what those prophecies would look like once they played out. You know, so there were challenges for them to understand it. And us as not Jews, of course there's going to be challenges for us to understand it. But does that mean that there's not truth to be gleaned or good things to be gleaned from that? For us too, absolutely not. But we just have to recognize and not get... Uh, discouraged when we run into wow this is really hard for us to to fathom and understand and grasp completely because uh, one we're dealing with types of literature that we're not used to and two we're not Jews does that all make sense so far so therefore uh, when we talk about a book like Revelation uh, this type of literature the genre that's been what it's called by theologians is apocalyptic prophecy. So there's prophecy, and then there's apocalyptic prophecy. So there's stuff that you read in, uh, in the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah that talks about um, God's going to do this, Israel, unless you repent, uh, his wrath's going to come, and, and, Isaiah, and they'll have metaphors for that. You know, like we talked about Hosea uh, when we did the bride and groom a few weeks back. Uh, during the Me and God series, and that was, you know, Hosea lived out a metaphor that was warning Israel that, you know, unless you become faithful to God again, you're going to have trouble. And so, that's regular prophecy. Then you have books like the book of Daniel. Anyone read through the book of Daniel recently? Anybody at all? (laughs) You have recently? Last year? The first part of it, starts out pretty tame, right? It's the story of Daniel as we know it. You know Daniel and the lion's den and things like that. The second part of Daniel gets into visions that Daniel had and that he's trying to describe. And so it gets into what's called apocalyptic prophecy. And you'll find if you read it, it sounds very much like the book of Revelation. Lots of symbols, lots of uh, numbers and things going on that you you read it and your head is spinning. And it's a unique type of literature, unique to Judaism, and, uh, and unique to that kind of prophecy. So that's the kind of literature that we're dealing with. And let me make sure I'm getting everything in the right order here. Okay. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Uh, end times through this series, but we're going to not limit ourselves to the book of Revelation, and we'll talk about why and the method we will use in just a minute, Uh, but we're going to rather take Revelation as kind of part of the whole, and we'll find that there's other passages that talk about end times as well. So last week we watched a video from a guy named uh, Ben Witherington III, wouldn't you like to have that name? And sounds very regal and official. Uh, But he is a professor at a seminary in Kentucky, Asbury Seminary. Uh, I think that's the one where Zanya's been going, for instance. And uh, anyhow, he's one of several professors that makes these seven-minute seminary videos where basically he boils down 
the contents of maybe a seminary kind of class and do a short digestible segment on a specific topic. And so we've got several of those that we'll look at through the course of this series. We also have clips from a guy named N.T. Wright, and I'll talk to you more about him and his background. He's got a very different background than Ben Witherington III. He's Anglican, whereas uh, Ben is Methodist, I believe. But uh, So anyhow, we're going to re- watch another clip from that, and then we'll talk about this some more. Um, but he's going to talk to us about the book of Revelation and apocalyptic prophecies. It's because this is a metaphorical image of a gnarly emperor. 
in the book of Daniel, if you were to read Daniel 6, 7, 8, 9, whatever, empires, whole empires are described as being like beasts, angry, ugly, violent beasts. And they are superseded finally like by one like a human being who comes down from heaven, Jesus himself, the Son of Man. Apocalyptic literature is visionary prophecy that's inherently metaphorical. Now, that doesn't mean it's not referential. Some people think, oh, metaphors. Well, if it's not literal, it's not true. And this is nonsense. The Bible is full of metaphorical images that are referential. There's an objective reality being described, but the way it's described is in terms of metaphor, simile. Uh, extended description of things. So one of the keys to reading the book of Revelation is understanding how metaphor works, understanding how analogy works. Now, if you don't understand the kind of literature you're reading, you're not going to interpret it properly. One time I was riding on the Blue Ridge Parkway and uh, my car broke down. And so I had to hitch a ride with a, a gentleman who was an old mountaineer. I called him the Ancient of Days later. And we got to talking about the fact that Neil Armstrong had landed on the moon. This was back in 1969. And he said to me, that was all fake. That was a Hollywood stunt. Nobody's up there on the moon. And besides all those pictures of the earth round and revolving, that's all fake. And I said, well, why do you think that? He said, says in the book of Revelations, the angels will stand on four corners of the earth. Can't be round, can it, mister, if it's got four corners. Now, the problem with this gentleman is not that he took the book of Revelation seriously. The problem is he thought it was teaching him cosmology and, and geography and geology when it was in fact teaching theology. What that passage is all about is the angels of God bringing people from all different points on the compass to be part of the elect of God. It's not trying to teach cosmology, it's teaching theology. Knowing what kind of literature apocalyptic prophecy is, is the key to beginning to understand the meaning of the most complex book in the New Testament. Here's my word of advice. If you're a new Christian, or you don't know your Bible very well, don't start by reading the book of Revelation. It's the most complex piece of literature in the whole canon. It's something you should aspire to at the end or nearer the middle of your Christian book. So I was thinking about this. Uh, and trying to think, you know, a way that we can wrap our minds around, you know, a, a, the right method. Because first of all, um, just as I kind of alluded to earlier, the book of Revelation is not the only place where end times are talked about. Jesus talks about it. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about it. Uh, the Apostle Peter talks about it uh, in letters and in uh, the Gospels. And so there's other places just in the New Testament that talk about end times. There's arguably spots in the Old Testament that give preview or um, you know, say minimal things about that there will be a final judgment so forth. 
but most of the detail comes in the New Testament, uh, and there are multiple passages that talk about it that are not found in the book of Revelation. And so, uh, obviously, when you talk about end times, we have to talk about the book of Revelation because there's a lot about it in there. It's part of its uh, main purpose. But what is the best way to approach it? What's the best method to use as we start trying to unfold what, um, you know, what can we say with certainty about things of the end times? And I was thinking about this. What do you do, like when you're reading something and you come across a paragraph that's just way over your head <laughs> and you don't have a clue what the writer is saying? Uh, maybe he's using words that you're not familiar with. Maybe he's talking about a subject that you're not familiar with. Um, you know, brain surgery or something, or <laughs> rocket science, or, uh, or you know, it's a, it's a poem that you're having a hard time understanding and so forth. Uh, when you run into a, a passage or something that's hard for you to understand or there's parts of it that, that you don't know what they're talking about, what do you do to try to arrive at some understanding of it? Even just a basic understanding. What, what's the thing that most of us would do to try and kind of sort that out? Besides open up a dictionary. <laughs> if you didn't have a dictionary handy and all you had to work with was the, the piece of literature that you're looking at right there, what would you do? Your teachers drill it into your head that you look for context keywords. clues. Or, or you can call them keywords if you want. You look for context clues, right? Which basically means that you look for things that you clearly do understand and you use those things to give you guidance on how to interpret the parts that you don't understand, right? I mean, so you're looking at, okay, I know what this means. So that's a clue for me on what they're trying to say here, right? That's what we do. We do it without thinking. When we, look, we read through a passage, a lot of times, you know, we don't even think, oh, I didn't know what they were saying, because we just figure we've got the gist of it based on everything else around it that we do understand. And so I want to suggest that our method as we go through this uh, is going to be to begin with, to start with what is clearest. And move towards, and let us guide us through what is, ready for it, not clearest. <laughs> Deep stuff here. Uh, but that's, that's what we're going to do. And, and not everyone does that when it comes to studying end times. Um, you will find people that, I've heard strong arguments uh, from people who believe differently that, that we should instead... You know that to do this method here says that somehow the book of Revelation is not on the same playing field as the other books of the Bible, that it's somehow lesser, and so uh, we can't do this method. But that's not what this method is saying. This method is not about the worth of Revelation compared to other books of the Bible or the truth of Revelation compared to other works of the Bible. It's about us and what we can understand and what we can't understand. And so to arrive to treat Revelation fairly... It makes sense that we take what is the clearest to us and then apply that to help us understand what the book of Revelation says. If we just start with the, book, the most complex book in the canon or in the Bible as, as it was just described, uh, then we can expect 
to make mistakes that we wouldn't have made if we had gotten ourselves informed about the clearer things first. Does that make sense? And so that's why we're going we're gonna to begin, or as we go through, you know, if we do a, a topic or something, if there's something that talks about it outside of Revelation, we'll look there first for our information and see if there's something clearly stated that we can know with greater certainty uh, and then apply that to how we interpret the book of Revelation. Okay, so that's kind of the look at it. So what I want to do now is, just like we did last week where we looked at kind of a synopsis of what's popular right now, you know, starting with the secret rapture and the tribulation and the thousand year reign and the uh, return and the judgment and all those things and everything in between. Uh, We're going to look at just some fundamental things that we can know that have to do with end times. And so you've got two sections there, fundamentals now and fundamentals when Christ returns. And there's things that we ought to understand about now to help us understand the then. So... Let's start with that. Use my fancy eraser here. So the first thing that we can know about now is that uh, we'll do now. The king reigns. This is appropriate since we're going to be talking about the king this morning too in our sermon today. The king reigns. Present tense. Now, uh, we believe that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a king was born, right? We sing about it every time this this year. We believe that. And then, as we're going to talk, I'm kind of giving away part of the message today, but we believe that when Jesus uh, was starting his public ministry, first John the Baptist talked about the kingdom being near, then Jesus came preaching about the kingdom, and... We see, we're going to see all that in a few minutes, so I won't go into the details of it, but here was the king. I mean, when he rode into Jerusalem, right on the day of the triumphal entry, people praised him as the coming king, as David's, you know, the one who was promised to come and take over David's throne. And and they had maybe some misconceptions about what that was going to look like, but there was no doubt about it, Jesus was a king. And when asked if he was a king, Jesus admitted it before Pilate, but said, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, right? And so Jesus is a king. And when he ascended, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and we're told explicitly time and time again that he reigns. He is sovereign over the church, over the world. And that's... There's a sense in which, in which that's true, and there's also a sense in which when he comes, he's going to reign in a different way. Uh, and, and I think this is a good way to understand it. See, because I, I had a hard time wrapping my mind around that. You know, what is the kingdom then? Is it now? Is it there? You know, where where is the kingdom fall? And this was interesting to me when I, when I read this, and maybe it'll help you as well, but think about King David. And you may have another example of a king in mind, but this is one of the ones that I'm most familiar with. I'm not that familiar with, uh, you know, kings and that form of government anyway. So, but, but look at David, for instance. As a child, he was anointed as king. All right, but he wasn't 
He didn't have a throne. He was a shepherd boy, right? And then through the years, you know, he waited and waited. The anointed king waited and then Saul died. King Saul died. And so then David was the successor. He was crowned king. But only like two or three tribes recognized him as king. And so he reigned in the southern portion of Israel. And there, the rest of the nine tribes or ten tribes up in the northern part didn't recognize him as their king. Then David, uh, you know, the rightful king of Israel, but not recognized by everybody. You know, then he takes over Jerusalem. And the rest of them decide, okay, you can be our king too. And then he's reigning over all of Israel. But there's boundary disputes. And the Philistines and different nations that still claim the territory and invade the territory and live in the territory that is his kingdom. So is his kingdom really fully come when there's nations and stuff still saying it's theirs? So much of David's kingship was running those people out. And by the time his son Solomon took over the throne, David had secured the borders, basically, of their kingdom. So that Solomon was able to focus on other things than just fighting off the Philistines. So, I mean, at what point do you say that David was reigning and not reigning as king? You know, at what point do you, did his kingdom come and fully come and so forth? You know, we think of kings and kingdoms in terms of like, you know, the Queen of England or whatever. You know? And there's, she just is the Queen of England and England is what it is. But... You know, when you think about a kingdom, like in David's context, you know, he was a king, he was anointed a king, and then it was a long time towards the end of his life before he had a kingdom in the sense that we would think of a secure, normal kingdom. And so maybe in a similar sense, Jesus, he's reigning as king, and yet there's still some boundary disputes. There's Philistines to be knocked out, you know, there's Satan to be overthrown, and there's everything to be set right, yet. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he's not reigning. Does that make sense? Uh, so it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around, but we can understand and recognize that Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. We worship him as such. Uh, there is no power over him. Even the greatest power in all the world at that time, Rome, you know, he's standing there before Pilate, right before he's condemned to die. And Pilate says, don't you realize I have the power to save you or to kill you. And Jesus says, you have no power except what's given to you by heaven, basically, you know, by me and my dad. <laughs> you know, we let you know what power you have. We give you what power you have. And so we can say Jesus reigns, right? So that's one thing we know about now, and that affects what we think about what's going to happen in end times, and it affects how we'll interpret some of what we read Another thing that we know about now is that uh, there's a, okay, death, the blanks are death, and paradise, or hell, I mean heaven, sorry, paradise or heaven, those are two very different things. (laughs) <laughs> don't know how you get confused with those except they both start with H, right? So, another thing that we know when we read Scripture is that 
when a believer dies, they are then with Jesus in paradise or heaven or whatever you want to call it. Um, Like the, the thief on the cross, right? And Jesus says, I tell you this day you'll be with me in paradise. And so there's... You know, something we know about now is that when we die in Christ, then we are with Christ afterwards. You know, and Paul talked about, for me, to die would be gain. You know, I would, I would much prefer to die and go ahead and be with Christ, um, but he may want me here for a little bit longer. And so there's a sense we know that about now. And the other thing that we know about now Oh, present suffering, that's what it is. When we read about end times stuff, you'll read a lot about suffering, all right? And we know very clearly uh, that there is suffering now, and there has been suffering since Christ left, and there will continue to be until he sets everything right. Uh, There's, Jesus said, in this world you will have Trouble, right? You'll have, there will be trouble. You will suffer for my sake, for my name. You will, you know, he explicitly said you'll be persecuted. And boy, I mean, the early church took some of the worst of it, but they didn't take all of it. And you see now, around the world still today, you know, you could say because the population of the world has grown and the population of, in Christianity has grown, there's more persecution today in sheer numbers than ever before. People who are being, I mean, literally shot down, right? And we, we've got videos of it <laughs> that, they, that these wicked people post online and stuff of shooting down Christians who will not renounce their faith. So there is suffering. And Jesus said, if you stand up for me, then people will attack you for it. So we're guaranteed of that, that in this world... Until Christ returns and sets things right, there will be suffering. So that's another thing we know about now. So what we can know about the fundamentals about when Christ returns came the end of the old world. You might write uh, slash order there if you can fit it in somewhere. Sometimes the word age is used, but in some sense or another, whether we're talking about the physical world, earth, or whether we're talking about the world as we know it, or the order of things as we know it, the way things work, the way we operate, the you know, sinfulness of humanity, the current world as we know it will end when Christ returns. That is abundantly clear Uh, so you know what all that entails there's argument and we'll get into that when we talk about it in details there's people who make a strong case that this world uh, will not literally be like evaporated or whatever but rather will be made new uh, and people will still you know this is where Christ will reign forevermore as on this planet remade, kind of. Or there's people that say, well, no, there'll be an entirely new heaven and earth and so forth. Uh, but 
what we can say with certainty is that the end of the world as we know it will happen. And on the flip side of that, there will be, when Christ returns, the beginning of a new world. The beginning of a new world, or order, or age. But, um, you know, some things that, like I said, we may not know for certain, and there's some argument about whether uh, whether that, you know, what that world looks like, or does, or is, or where it is, or whatever. But what's not in question is that in this current, which will be old, world or order, there's a lot of things messed up, right? And there's the suffering that we just talked about, and there's injustice, and there's oppression, and there's sickness, and there's evil, and there's just a lot that's wrong in this world. And that will pass away, is what we're told, and that there will be a new world, and a new order, and a new reign, and God will reign as king, and things will be as he intended it to be when he created it. It will operate as it was originally intended. So, uh, what else can we know about when Christ returns? We can know that there will be a, the next one is resurrection and new bodies. Wait a second, resurrection, that's what Jesus did, right? We're just supposed to be beamed up somewhere, right? And (laughs) that's it. But the Bible talks about a second resurrection or a, a uh, resurrection of the saints in which talks about new bodies that we're given and uh, that we'll, we can assume, I think, whether we're right or not, we can assume that, you know, like Jesus, right? take Jesus' resurrection as the example. He was resurrected and he was given a new body, right? And it was different than the body that he had had before, but similar. And it it worked. I mean, he could still eat, but he could also be gone and, and reappear, or uh, you know, things that were not normal. And it took the disciples a minute to recognize him, you know, and it, it was there was something different about him. And so he was given, he was resurrected and given a new body. And likewise, it says those of us who die in Christ will be resurrected and and given a new body. And and so we'll dive into more specifics of that and how that works, uh, but that is clearly stated, as we'll see in the days to come. And I think that that's probably something we miss a lot of times, isn't it? You know, we think, I think, you know, what, what I've heard about heaven and stuff, for instance, you know, is very spirity, cloudy, wingsy, pearly gatesy, uh, and not very physical, right? But but the Bible talks about a resurrection and new bodies of a physical nature. So uh, the last thing that we can expect when Christ returns is judgment. And so we'll get to talk about what that entails, but uh, like we mentioned last week when we were talking about questions that y'all have, uh, is I'm glad that he's the one that's the judge and not me, right? There'll be a lot to sort out on that day that of, you know, I mean, we were asking questions last week, you know, and throwing out, what about the people that never heard about Jesus? Or what about the people that died before Jesus? Or what about the people who, you know, commit suicide? Or all these different gray areas that we don't have figured out. And I'm thankful that I'm not the one that's going to be sitting on the judgment seat 
And another thing that I've grown thankful about when, I, when I've been reading lately, especially if, as I've been reading through the Psalms recently, is every time the Psalms talk about justice and judgment and God's justice, it's a positive thing. It's a we can't wait for it. And we'll rejoice when it comes. And it's an exciting thing. And somehow we've turned it into this thing of, oh no, <laughs> it's the judgment coming and are we ready? And it's this scary thing and we're all worried to death about it. And is my name on the book or is it not in the book? And how am I doing? And am I being good enough? And oh my goodness, he knows everything about me. And it's all going to be laid out. And, and is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say you're going to hell? And what's going to happen? And we've turned it into this scary thing, but throughout Scripture, it's this positive thing that justice will be served, that evil will be destroyed, that uh, you know the things that were so wrong now will be set right. And there's a, a hope for God's justice, a longing for God. It's, the whole earth longs for God to come and set things right. And we should long for that too as Christ followers. And, uh, and, and remember this, that the one who's given the responsibility to judge, and he'll judge justly, is also the one that loves you more than anybody else ever loved anybody. And that goes for everybody on the planet. So the one who is going to stand in judgment is the one who gave his life for you. you know. And who would you rather have judge than the one who loves you that much? And, uh, and so, yeah, justice will be done. Things will be set right. But the one who judges is the one who longs for you to be in a right relationship with him and loves you so much that he gave his life for you. So you can bet that it's not going to be um, a biased judgeship or a, uh, something that's bent out of your favor or anything like that. You know, uh, It will be just, but it will be, there will be love mingled in it as well. And we who love Christ and follow Christ can long for and look forward to the day where he'll set everything right.